Today's guest is Mark Lewis, PhD, author of The Biology of Desire. Mark's book was actually recommended reading when I was in the One Taste Coaching Program many years ago. If you don't know about that part of my story, you can check out the two episodes I did on when I was in a matriarchal sex cult. It was for the coaching program, and one of the reasons was that in his book, he speaks about how addiction and desire work, and both on a subjective level uh, from the experience that we can call psychological or maybe even spiritual, but also what's actually going on in the brain. And most of us, probably most of you you listening, maybe don't have experience with addiction or or don't consider yourself to be an addict, but we all have behaviors that we don't necessarily mean to do. And Mark speaks a lot about what's actually going on in the brain. What are the factors that lead us to have these unconscious behaviors? And it was really enlightening speaking with him. It was actually really fun because I first listened to his book back in 2013 when I was in the one taste world and I had one view of a, a desire and addiction and I was pretty new to understanding 12 step. I just gotten out of a relationship with someone very deep in various forms of substance abuse. Yeah, to re-listen to his book, again now, seven years later, and speak with him. I thought it was very enlightening. And again, even if um, addiction is not something that you experience in your life or have any familiarity with, a lot of what we speak about in this episode in terms of motivation, decision-making, habit formation, and some spiritual themes um, or upbringing themes, developmental themes, I think you will find very interesting. Right now, you're listening to episode 083, Mark Lewis, The Biology of Desire. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, part of the Gotham Podcast Studio Network in New York, New York. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're rolling. Uh, Mark, it's great to have you. Uh, thanks for making the time. Welcome. Nice to be here. Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, I, I was introduced to your book, I think maybe seven years ago, um, as part of it was recommended reading for a coaching certification program I was taking within a spiritual community where there's a lot of addiction themes. So it's something that was suggested to read and I re-listened to it uh, this year. And um, even though most people don't think of themselves as addicts, perhaps, I think a lot of what you cover in the book is is universally applicable when it comes to habit formation and our behaviors. So I'm, I'm really excited to speak to you today. Great. Okay. Well, thanks. It'll be nice to, uh, yeah, to toss over many things. Yeah. So starting with uh, your book, Biology Desire, um, there's different models of addiction and you pick uh, you uh, argue for one of three, and it'd be great if you could share a little bit about that so we know where we're coming from as far as desire, this desire model. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the reason why my way of looking at addiction applies more broadly to, uh, to non-substance problems and to people's, um, in answer to your question, um, the three models of addiction are roughly the disease model, um, the idea that addiction is primarily a, a brain disease um, and uh, that kind of arose in the late uh, in the late 20th century and has been dominant in the last you know last couple of decades last two or three decades that was a replacement from of, a, of an earlier model you could say it's a model or you know set of biases in which addicts were thought to be um, uh, you know uh, self um, self-serving weak, evil sinners, whatever, any bad people. And so the disease model came along and said, well, no, actually, it's not that they're just self-indulgent jerks. It's that they have a brain disease and therefore they shouldn't be stigmatized and they need help and they should get help. And so that was a good thing. Um, the the uh, second model you can think of as the choice model, which is pretty much the diametric opposite. It's not a disease, it's a choice. People make choices when they take drugs or when they do other addictive activities. And so calling it a disease is really you know, a diversion and it's inaccurate. And it also um, uh, uh, removes responsibility where, where, from where it should be with, with the person and their, and their intentionality. And I guess, I mean, there are other sort of submodels, but you could say um, the way I look at addiction is pretty much in the middle. Um, I, I think of it as, as a deeply ingrained habit, um, which is strongly reinforced by repetition and by the fact that people become addicted to highly, um, highly exciting, satisfying, uh, desired, obviously, um, outcomes. So, you know, you don't get addicted to cornflakes normally, you get addicted to heroin or meth or sex or or video games um, and they're exciting and they make you feel good so you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and yes the brain does change the brain rewires itself according to these activities because the brain is always changing when people are learning 
that's the way it works. That's the way it's supposed to work. So I've spent the last uh, you know, five to 10 years arguing against the disease model and saying, uh, really, I mean, I've, my, my career was that of a research uh, neuroscientist and professor for, for many years. So I know a fair bit about cognitive neuroscience. And to say that uh, addicts' brains change um, does not in any way uh, imply that they have a disease. If you take a developmental perspective, then of course they change. They have to change with learning. And so that always seemed highly irrational, besides not very useful as a clinical uh, approach to addiction for reasons that we, we could get into. So those are pretty much, and I'm not the only one who says stuff like that. There are other people who take this, what I think of as a somewhat more um, balanced, and, well, of course, I think of it as a more balanced and pro progressive approach to addiction. So it, it doesn't hive off biology versus personal behavior and choice and cognition. It says they are both uh, really important aspects of what happens. Yeah, that was almost like uh, like one of the meta points I thought was so fascinating about your book. I mean, and maybe maybe this is obvious to anyone who works with the brain, but for the rest of us, like just the just the knowledge that the physical structure of the brain changes as we as we have different subjective experiences. I thought it was very yeah. interesting, and also what you're saying about learning is kind of what makes this this whole topic applicable to everybody. We all have behaviors we don't like. We all have uh, yeah. things we may want to change, and maybe addiction is like an extreme of it or what we consider substance abuse. That's what, that's how I see it. Yeah. I think it's an extreme form of a, a habit that we don't like, and we have a really hard time breaking just to put it in very simple terms. Yeah. And, and the piece with desire, uh, if, correct me if this is oversimplifying or the wrong way to look at it, but it sounds like your model of addiction is um, a normal biological mechanism that we're supposed to have for good reason for survival or, or whatnot. And it kind of gets perverted or misused kind of like um, the way I thought, thought of it is like, we're supposed to like sugar because we're yes. supposed to eat fruit, but then yeah. we weren't prepared for the processed foods that are now making us obese. Is that a fair way to put it? Yep, it is. Um, in that the things that people become addicted to, including certain substances, have a biological presence, uh, a biological signature that makes them uh, uh, makes them attractive, um, regardless of one's psychological makeup, regardless of you know how you go into the situation. If you're if you are taking opiates, for example, you will feel some relaxation, some sense of peacefulness, or, or being soothed, or a relief of fear or anxiety, and that's just the way the brain responds to opioid molecules. Similarly, sugar, as, as you said, um, triggers particular neural processes because the brain is structured to respond to sugar in a very particular way for survival reasons. And all the drugs of abuse, well, they, I mean, the main ones pretty much fall into the two categories of either being stimulants, three categories, stimulants, opiates, or um, uh, anxiolytics, uh, drugs which reduce anxiety, like, like benzodiazepines, like Valium and so forth. So their physiological effects on the brain are um, built, are, are built in, are a function of our biology. And we know that partly because we see that uh, other animals, uh, even animals really far down the evolutionary chain, like zebrafish, zebrafish will swim to a part of their tank where the water has been um, uh, has been loaded with uh, with opioids. They'll, mm. they'll, hang, they'll hang out in that region of of the tank because apparently they like it, and it's not you know it's not nurture it's not uh, 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 nourishment. So in some way, it's affecting their nervous system in a way that must be pleasurable or attractive. I mean, it's hard to talk about pleasure when you're talking about fish, but right. but they, they, they're there for a reason. And you see the same thing with stimulants. With stimulants whether it's rats or mice or monkeys or fish, um, animals are drawn to stimulants. And presumably, I mean, I mean, I think that consciousness of some sort goes down pretty far and there is a sense of excitement. Sense is the wrong word. There, there is excitement in the system and that is what draws the animal to, to that substance. So with us humans, obviously, we build these basic... And, and it doesn't mean, of course, that everybody gets addicted to things that are, quote, addictive. Actually, a pretty small proportion end up addicted uh, for all kinds of good reasons, because they 
it gets boring or they know it's bad for them, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas zebrafish don't have that option. But um, uh, so, it, so it starts off with biological attraction then it ends up with that with repetition and the repetition builds neural uh, pathways, synaptic networks, and the synaptic networks kind of shape the brain in such a way that you keep doing the thing, whether or not it still provides the initial uh, attraction, the attraction that it did the first time. That, that was sorry. That was quite a mouthful. <laughs> How's the signal? No, no, I know this is great. Uh, yeah, it, it, we did pause. We might have to cut video, but um, I, I heard that part. Um, yeah. So with the three types of um, uh, substances that you mentioned, I, I was curious uh, about if there's certain types. Uh, is there certain like preconditions in us that have us maybe drawn to stimulants over opioids? I, I was speaking with a a friend of mine who's in grad school studying psychedelics, and she was saying how, you know, some people are drawn to cocaine, and some for some people cocaine's boring, and then uh, for some people they're super into opioids. Other people's like, oh, I don't want this feeling. This is terrible. I mean, yeah, is is, yeah. is there something? Is it? Is it? I mean, I guess it's, I was a nature and nurture question. I was going to ask you what what leads someone to addiction anyway. But about these three types of yeah. substances, is there anything that predisposes someone? It's a really interesting question. I think it's hard to answer. I guess at the, the first loss is that I guess people who tend to be more anxious or stressed out are going to be drawn to things that are calming or soothing, like opioids or benzodiazepines. And people who feel more uh, flat or uh, lacking in meaning or direction or significance or relevance or something or power uh, will be drawn more to stimulants. Right. So that's because it's giving them what they're missing. Um, so then you can break that down in that any kind of psychological trauma, harm, abuse, neglect in childhood or adolescence, uh, nasty circumstances, economic difficulties, divorce, job loss, whatever it is. Those um, experiences produce stress, large amounts of stress, and therefore people are going to react according to habits that they've built up as well as the um, genetic or biological, you know, endogenous features that they kind of came, came uh, equipped with. Right. So if you, if you've gotten used to hiding from stress, for example, then you're probably going to tend more towards opioids because opioids make you feel kind of like, you know, deep, dark and safe. Whereas if you, if you're, if you're disposed to um, respond to stress by kind of fighting back, then you might be more drawn to to uh, amphetamines and, and other for other psychostimulants. So, so that fits in perfectly with the self-medication model. It's like we're just instinctually sure kind of like uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example from nature, but I think cats will eat grass when they need to purge something out of themselves. It's like we're just finding the thing that fits our need. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's always that. I mean, you're always trying to make yourself feel better one way or another. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, moving away from substances, this maybe is true from every, for every behavior that we don't want that's unintentional uh, down to maybe even simple bad habits is self-soothing. Yeah. Well, yeah. So substances is one thing. Sex is obviously can be addictive. Sex mm -hmm. is fun and feels good. And I know you've had lots Lots of discussions of, of that on your mm -hmm. from different angles on your mm -hmm. on your um, podcast. Um, so it's diverting, it's fun, it's exciting, it feels good in all kinds of ways. And so in so sex is can be addictive. Sex addiction is not just having a lot of sex. Sex addiction mm -hmm. is is serious, and it's it really fucks up people's marriages and their lives. You know, it's, it's can be can be pretty bad. Porn addiction can also be pretty bad, and they're not exactly the same thing. And then when you get into other kinds of behavioral addictions, like, um, uh, well, let's say uh, internet or gaming addictions, like nowadays, it's not unusual to talk about gaming as being addictive. And why is that addictive? I mean, look, there's no, there's no uh, chemical lock and key sort of thing in the brain that would make video games attractive, but it's really fun to conquer and to, you know, uh, maybe especially for guys or maybe who knows, maybe not, um, to conquer, to, to persevere, to achieve goals, and to do that and to be in that sweet spot between slipping down you know, into defeat and then pulling yourself to victory might be particularly attractive. So game designers yeah. are really good at manufacturing that, you know, that, that. Uh, yeah, it's like the processed sugar 
for exactly yeah 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 i had um i had lieutenant colonel grossman who wrote a book on killing and he was basically his thesis is that video games are directly related to the school shootings we see because they just practice they practice killing and he was actually saying that most video games train can train a, a child to shoot better than a law enforcement officer because it's so efficient in how it trains the mind <laughs> I actually listened to some of that one. I, I strongly disagree with the general point. Hmm. I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, please. No, I'm curious, yeah. Well, my, my wife actually studies um, video games in, in depth and uh, for kids and adolescents. And uh, the, the data show that there's actually no evidence that video games per se lead to violence. There just isn't. It's, there are so many different kinds of effects for different people that it's just, it's an urban myth. Video games do not increase tendencies to hurt other people. Now, video games can train people to be more skilled in a particular domain. And yes, that could include shooting. So it could improve your marksmanship, but that doesn't necessarily, uh, that doesn't necessarily increase your tendency to want to shoot. You don't think it desensitizes one? I mean, if you see bodies fall so many times, you're maybe less likely to have a weird reaction i mean i know that's that's the intuitive assumption and that was my assumption too until my wife showed me you know just hordes and hordes of data which you know they i mean they do lots of uh, double blind studies showing that exposure to violent video games um really doesn't change the tendency to engage in violent behavior i know it's it's a little um counterintuitive but that's what the data suggests and we, we've got, my wife and I have a couple of 14-year-old uh, twins now, they're 14-year-old boys, so we don't let them play games in which there's a lot of spurting blood, but games like, um, uh, what's it called, um, they're so popular, uh, Fort, Fortnite, was it Fortnite? Mm-hmm. Fort, really popular for a few years. Um, not much spurting blood, but there's a lot of shooting, and that, that's, that was okay, and in fact, video games in which there are which are a soldier or a conqueror or a gladiator or whatever, and using strategies and thinking and problem-solving skills to overcome your enemy and then shoot them, um, actually improve a lot of cognitive capabilities and even social capabilities in certain contexts because you're a team player and you're learning to cooperate with the other mm-hmm. players on your team. So there's, there's all so many effects that, you know, that pertain to, to video games, including violent ones. Uh-huh. But uh, actually, I mean, and I'd be curious to to see that. And I'm mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, where. I mean, yeah, I, I'm curious about all the opinions because one of the things that I thought was also interesting in your book was um, like just the idea of practicing emotions. I don't know if you use those terms, but that's the way I interpreted uh, how maybe certain habits form. It's like uh, when we have a certain emotion, there actually is. Uh, change in the brain and then repeated emotion has it fire more easily. I, I don't know, maybe I'm yeah. using the wrong terms here. Um, I'm just wondering about the video game thing. If you do find joy in the feeling of killing, wouldn't maybe that come back more quickly or maybe that override the the sadness that would come with seeing someone die? I, this is just me looking at it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think kids are really good at, and maybe adults too, are really good at differentiating between play and reality. And when I was a kid, which was a long time ago, uh, you know, we had um, cap guns. I mean, we had guns that went bang and we would aim it at each other. And if you got shot, you would, you know, have to fall out of the tree and play dead um, Mm -hmm. if someone aimed correctly. And so there was a lot of shooting going on. And, you know, kids are always playing with guns or swords or whatever it is. And no one really started talking about a correlation with violent behavior until the as, as we talked about earlier, the process became more refined, like refined sugar or, or like heroin became, and, and then game producers were really good at finding the right sweet spot. But I think, I think they know it's a game. And, uh, and they, unless there are other factors in their environment that pick up on that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, kind of shape it into a, a behavioral disposition or uh, a, a cool way of interacting socially, then, but then you can attribute the the effect to those social variables rather than to the game itself. Gotcha. That's how, how I would look at it. Gotcha. That makes sense. I mean, not 
I guess not everyone exposed to a certain substance. Most people exposed to a substance don't become addicted, but if they have a pre-existing, That's, yeah, 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 it, it makes sense. Um, I'm familiar with uh, Carl Hart's, Dr. Carl Hart's work. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sure I assumed you were. I mean, I'm not a ton, but I know he kind of argues for completely uh, free substance use laws. I think he was even saying like, oh yeah, anyone can use heroin responsibly. Um, I, m- I might be. I don't know if that's exactly his argument, but I was curious what you thought of that. Yeah, um, I've read his book, and I've met him, and I've read a couple of articles by him. Um, and we've talked on the same stage a couple of times. When he gets when he gets going, he gets a bit extreme. But he doesn't, no, he doesn't think we should be selling heroin at the corner store at all. He thinks that uh, he definitely believes in decriminalization, and the next step is uh, legalization, but that always has a caveat, which is regulation. And the idea behind that is that, say, kids, adolescents, whatever, can access drugs pretty damn easily right now, you know, on the street mm. without any regulation. So wouldn't it be better if the drugs are only available through sources that, for example, with alcohol, uh, uh, you know, under a certain age, no, this is not permitted. And even at a certain age, there are particular cautions. So for example, in Switzerland, uh, if you are a heroin user and you can't stop um, or don't want to stop, I guess, uh, it can it will be supplied by a clinic, a clinical heroin, by a medical clinic where you can have where you can have um, a prescribed dose so that you don't overdose. But they take away your driver's license. You have to give up your driver's license. So and there's a few European countries that have played around with this idea of controlled legalization with um, you know with constraints with rules. Mm-hmm. Now with Carl Hart, um, yeah, he goes for that. Because he says, basically, it's better than what we've got now, where there's massive amounts of drugs available on the street and kids are getting high, getting loaded and overdosing, especially in the inner city, right? So it's, he, he recognizes the incredible dangers that, that, um, that, are, are, um, that, that come with the present system, and he would like to, to reduce those dangers. And he also stresses education. He says, instead of forbidding... And, you know, and locking up drugs and making, uh, returning to, returning, continuing with a prohibition atmosphere. Rather than that, educate kids, educate them about the dangers of becoming addicted because addiction isn't fun. It's not cool. It's not fun. And it really reduces the, the amount of fun that you can have until you, you know, shake yourself free of it. So, he thinks that educating our kids is a useful way to divert them from that kind of substance use. Gotcha. Uh, do you agree with that uh, argument? <laughs> yeah, I thought you might ask that. Pretty much, although I worry, I mean, the other side of the argument is that access, any kind of access, is a doorway towards. Uh, overuse and potential addiction so, yeah and i've got two 14 year olds so yeah i, I was thinking because like uh you know i've dabbled with various substances i haven't had a substance abuse issue but i i mean there have been points in my life where i was very vulnerable and i know yeah. the only reason why i haven't taken heroin is that no one's offered it to me like if someone got to me when i was 23 and yeah. they seemed cool and they had it i would have tried it for sure and i don't know what would have happened going from that vulnerable state with access to it. So yeah, when I first, I mean, I guess I got some of his argument wrong, but when I first heard it, I was like, I don't know if I would want to live in a world like that, even just for, with people like myself. Well, he certainly doesn't want to, he doesn't want to construct a world where lots of people are addicted to drugs. That's not, mm-hmm. not an, at all, right? Yeah. Right. And I mean, it's a tough one because certain substances are so physiologically attractive that the tendency to use to overuse them, just use that word for now, is going to be higher just just as a baseline. Um, and that's a danger. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe certain drugs like heroin and crack, for example, should never, ever be accessible, mm-hmm. um, which means that perhaps other opiates, for example, might be... Um, it might be beneficial for them to be accessible to people 
who can really benefit from them. And when I say benefit from them, I mean either because they have an addiction and they really can't stop or having a really hard time. And now we're talking, you know, about 5% of users perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, or because, you know, it functions as an antidepressant. I mean, opioids can be really good antidepressants for people with a certain kind of disposition or history, especially a trauma history, as we talked about. So maybe, you know, not heroin, but certain opiates that are less addictive um, and more controllable, right? Maybe that, maybe it would be advantageous. You know, I had the same, when I was in my actually late teens, I also thought somebody, somebody offered me heroin. I mean, this is a long time ago, right? It was like 68. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. I wanted to be a bad boy. Anyway, I was kind of into you know, being a risk taker. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll try that. And sure enough, you know, I, over the next few years, I did become addicted. I mean, psychologically addicted, which is the worst to me. Uh, really, the only sensible definition of addiction is a psychological process. And I, it took me years to finally, you know, stop using opiates. Mm -hmm. Can you, do you make a distinction between physiological and psychological addiction? Or do you think it's just an addiction if it's psychological? Or can you share what you feel the difference is? Yeah, sure. I'm glad you asked. Um, if it's physical, I would just call it a dependency, a drug dependency, right? And you, you can be dependent on opiates or benzodiazepines, you know, like like um, Xanax, for example, uh, uh, all kinds of depressants, alcohol. You can be dependent on lots of substances so that you can't get off them quickly. Or if you do, it's going to be uh, really uncomfortable and maybe even dangerous. So I, I call that a, a, a drug dependency. Whereas addiction to me is the attraction, and not only to me, but to other, to a lot of other people who think in terms of the cognitive and developmental aspects of addiction, it's the draw, it's the, it's the craving, it's the desire, it's the sense of value that you uh, ascribe to these substances. That's the, that's the core of the addiction. And we know, and the reason we know we can separate those is because there are drugs like cocaine which are very addictive and which have no physiological dependency at all. Hmm. You can use cocaine, you know, every day for, for years and stop and you're going to feel probably pretty uh, shitty for a couple of days, like you would on a you know, drinking bender, but you're not going to have withdrawal for, for, you know, for weeks and weeks or anything resembling that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, when you go into the psychological side of things, I think, um, I mean, obviously we're talking about subjective experience and things can be looked at kind of spiritually. I think how 12 step often looks at things. And I, I'm curious on your take on that, because you, you do reference uh, 12 step or mention 12 step throughout your book. And um, I've been to AA meetings, both for myself and loved ones. And I've always had an issue with the first step. I always, I, I found like my first experience with addiction. I was dating someone who was going through 12 step and she was writing on her whiteboard. I'm an addict. I'm an addict. And for me being a very naive person who likes self-help, I was like, that seems like bad auto suggestion. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't really get it, but um, I was yeah. curious what you think of that. And also that this, this, the program itself. It's, it's a really complex subject, right? I mean, you can't avoid it if you're in, in kind of in the addiction world. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. The first step is tr is tricky, and the idea of the powerlessness. I, I, the first step is about giving up your power, saying I'm not, I, I don't have power over this. Well, the twelve steppers will say we don't mean that you can't have be self empowering eventually, but you have to start off by recognizing that you got this real problem that has to do with will or intention or deliberation. But I mean, for some people, 12-step meetings work, AA and NA and the rest of them work okay, but they don't have a terrifically high success rate because it's a very particular kind of intervention. It's very, it can be very dogmatic and uh, somewhat often ritualistic. As you say, you have to start by defining yourself as an addict, and they actually subscribe to um, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's like a chronic disease model. You will, you will never not be an addict. So that's why they say in recovery, you're always mm -hmm. an addict in recovery. You're not mm -hmm. ever recovered. Right. Well, I find that, you know, pretty pathetic. Like, you know, I used to use, I used to use a lot of drugs and be really seriously addicted and I haven't for a very long time. So why can't I just say I'm not an addict anymore? And 
I, I, I have a pretty active blog. I get a lot of readers, most of whom have been through addiction or are in addiction or coming out the other side or were years ago. And a lot of them have had difficulties with AA and gone on to other things or managed to quit on their own. Actually, a lot of addicts quit on their own. And some people report really hard times with AA. That, that self-definition of I am an addict seems like a, an additional weight that you have to carry around forever. And for some people, that's really toxic. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, uh, I remember I was working on a project once with two uh, recovered alcoholics. And one guy had never heard of the 12-step program. He said, oh, yeah, back when I was in my 20s, I was an alcoholic. And there's a woman who had been sober the same amount of time. And she says, I am an alcoholic. Like, I can't even have a sip of wine. And they both seemed like very similar. But, I mean, she was terrified of yeah, yeah. situations where she would be vulnerable so that, that terror is drilled in, right? I mean, that terror is very deliberately manufactured by by those by those meetings. I don't want to. I don't. I'm not an AA basher. I think, for, first of all, the fact that it's a grassroots, you know, community based organization and it's free is tremendously valuable, especially in places like the U.S. So, and and for some people, it's very useful. And a recent article came out, I think, in the um, um, what was it? Um, the Atlantic, I think, saying there's new evidence, new, a new well-controlled uh, high-end study showing that the success rate was higher than previously thought, somewhere around 30 or 40 percent. That's, that's a good number. Um, but, um, but sorry, I, yeah. I lost track of the original question. No, just yeah. uh, first step. Um, and I yeah, because actually, I don't know if you referenced Rock Bottom directly. I made some notes while I was re-listening to your book, but um, Rock Bottom is one of the one of the concepts that I, I at least found out about through Twelve Step. And uh, you did say I you did um, say something in your book that I wrote down: um, reconnecting to reconnecting your desire to higher intention after a period of great suffering, which to me sounded just like Rock Bottom as like a moment that someone can make the choice to change their habit, uh, yeah. to, to put it one way. Um, do you feel that that point of suffering is necessary? Yeah. Another good question. I don't think it's necessary, um, but it can help. For me, it was also pretty much a rock bottom situation. I was, I, it was between the age of 28 and 30 that I finally like, this is destroying my life. And I've got lots of the details in my first book on addiction, memoirs of, of an addicted brain. Um, I mean, you know, a couple of convictions, getting kicked out of grad school, the works. And that's when I exerted more effort to quit and did quit and, you know, started mindfulness meditation and stuff like that and did Tai Chi in the park at night instead of, you know, going out and finding drugs. And so that was useful for me. But other people grow out of it and they, they call it maturing out of addiction or sometimes they call it spontaneous recovery. It happens, it happens to different people in very different ways. And, and people in the addiction community, that is to say experts, um, pretty much recognize the huge diversity of ways that people stop using. Mm -hmm. I find this interesting because it's one of these uh, ideas that I think certainly applies to non-substance uh, addicts or any, anyone who's like, I can't get, I mean, even mundane things. I can't get to myself to the gym. I can't work on the business. I won't write my book. Like something that just, and then they all hope at some point they switch gears. Maybe it's pain. Maybe get it, going through a divorce finally gets to the gym or something like that. But sometimes it's not. And I've I've always been curious: what is is there something controllable that or some factor that people can be aware of that allows this shift of motivation? Well, suffer, suffering is a great motivator. Yeah, obviously. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's kind of that simple. I mean, if people suffer enough, they usually will work harder to change their habits. Uh -huh. and, th and because if you think of addiction as a habit, then that's, that's the whole equation right there. Because um, it's hard to quit. And it's hard to quit for all kinds of reasons. It's not just the habit loop of taking the substance, feeling something, and say, okay, I feel better. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. It's, it's more than that. It's also because your whole social and emotional world is shrinking around the addiction. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I like to think of it nowadays, and um, I've written about it recently in terms of, well, your brain is getting wired up to kind of aim for this event, experience, 
substance. Uh, it's also the case that your social world is is contracting around that that tendency. So you you uh, lose contact with friends and family and loved ones and lovers, and you become less interested in all the other things. I mean, this is you know kind of well known as pop psychology. You lose interest because you the whole motivational system gets aimed in the same direction every day for long enough and the other stuff just you know falls off the radar well anyway so 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 suffering and and big a big blast of something and it could be religious conversion too okay i've I've found jesus right it's another sudden motivation shift that can help people stop can you share a little more about your experience of when I guess you had your rock bottom or things shifted? Because it sounds like you probably went through a lot of suffering prior to that. But like, what was different about like what was it about this threshold of pain that made it different for you? It's probably different for every person. I think it, it is different for everyone, but there are patterns. Um, there are generalizable patterns. So, well. Like I said, I, I finally stopped at the age of 30. And part of it was turning 30. So, and age is a factor. Like getting older is just in itself a pretty powerful factor because why? Partly because you see your life as, you know, passing along and moving along and you recognize you're not going to live forever and you start to realize you better get your shit together now or never. Mm -hmm. So that that's, that's a big deal, especially, you know, for alcohol users uh, in their 20s. A lot of people drink in you know, college or whatever in their 20s, uh, even excessive binge drinking and stuff. And when they hit 30, a lot of the, the curve drops at 30 for a lot of, for uh, in, in general, for college age drinkers, obviously. But yeah, so, so that's one factor. And it was a compilation of things. Um, I say it was, uh, I, I had a conviction. I, I lost a lot of traction in my schooling. I got kicked out of grad school because of the conviction. Uh, a girlfriend that I was really in love with had had enough of it, you know, and, and quit and left me. And it's like, oh my God, I'm losing everything. And I'm really starting to hate this stuff. And, you know, I'm just starting to despise it. And, and it, it kind of built into a, a revulsion, which counterbalanced the attraction. I think that's the simplest way I could, I could put it. Gotcha. And a lot of people, I mean, the whole, re they get into the addiction because of pain as well. Um, yeah. Was that your experience as well? I assume it was more than just wanting to be cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the correlations between addiction and, um, let's just call it emotional distress. It could be abuse, neglect, uh, or trauma. Those are the big three. Uh, is really high. It's a high correlation. For me, it was, I, went, I was sent to boarding school when I was 15. It was a horrible school. I hated it. I hated every moment of it. It was very militaristic. I was this kind of sensitive guy from Toronto. This was a school in, in Massachusetts where a lot of, you know, rich kids with really different uh, um, orientations, manners, uh, uh, philosophies. There's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of you know ferocity and and i just I, I i i just kind of got squeezed into a little nugget of survival for those for those two years of the last two years of high school so i got out of there and we moved my family and i moved directly to california from toronto to california berkeley california 1968 you know what was going on then in berkeley california uh counterculture <laughs> shift <laughs> yeah big one mm -hmm. that was that was the height of it and that was the peak. And that was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, I was very much into all three. Like, it was, it was to me, the, a big escape from a, a really ongoing, traumatic, challenging, horrible experience. I came out of that school really depressed. I learned how to be depressed. And uh, so when I got to Berkeley, I, I just started gobbling drugs. It was just a way to, wow, I can change the way I feel. I don't have to feel lonely or depressed or you know hopeless or whatever it is that i felt at that time because i can put this thing in my mouth and feel different in half an hour what a cool thing is that and i it's that in itself with substance use is a pretty powerful um shall we say mechanic the idea that you can put something in your body and change the way you feel I mean, that's a powerful little formula yeah is it always an upbringing thing uh for 
or is it, I mean, are there other factors behind childhood experiences that uh, leave someone prone to addiction? There's a lot of argument about the genetics of addiction. Um, I don't myself get into it in detail, uh, partly because, well, to put it simply, there, there are no particular genes or genetic clusters or genetic traits that per se um, lead to addiction, predispose to addiction. Rather, if you tend to be uh, a risk taker, then you have a higher tendency to try drugs and therefore a higher probability of becoming addicted. addicted. But if, it's, if you're the opposite, if you tend to be um, an introvert, right, and, or shy or, you know, kind of keeping a, a low profile, you're also probably going to have fewer friends and maybe experience more loneliness. So you're also prone to, um, to use drugs, more, more likely to use drugs. And that's why behavioral genetics just adds up those different um, variabilities, those different predictive yeah, levels, and says, okay, addiction is 50% heritable, 50% genetic. It's just, that's not, it's not a sensible way to talk about it because mm -hmm. those are obviously really different factors. And they're right. always me mediated by social experience anyway. So, so yeah, I'd say upbringing is by far the biggest factor. It's, and it's, you know, it's your family of origin. It's your parents' mental health. It's your parents' parenting skills. I mean, my parents were pretty good in some ways, but man, that was a big mistake sending me to that school. That was like, that was, that was dumb. And they, they recognized that after the fact and apologized profusely. Uh -huh. But for other kids, you know, like, obviously like neglect or abuse, emotional abuse, just parental coldness or uh or parental volatility anger rage uh, unpredictable parental reactions that in itself produces a lot of stress in, in childhood and adolescence and that that is a strong predictor right there yeah and having an alcoholic parent or an addicted parent um yeah because yeah, like uh like with al-anon and uh aca adult children about alcoholics like there's a lot of behaviors or um problems that even a non-addicted child of an addict has. Uh, recently, I just, I, I, a good friend of mine, I found out her grandparents were alcoholics. And she said, there's all these behaviors that grandchildren of alcoholics have, according to her, um, because their parents grew up in an alcoholic household. Right. They maybe overly put, they put, uh, put a positive shine on things. So grandchildren of alcoholics, like see the world through like um, naively rose-colored glasses as according to her I don't, i've never heard of that before but i thought that was interesting how far how far these behaviors can pass on well yeah you get the transgenerational effects but uh, i wouldn't say it's because of the rosiness of the glasses i would say it's probably the opposite the alcoholism is you know it's it's fucked up I and mean, it makes you miserable you, mm -hmm. you start you, you act uh in ways that are make other people very unhappy and, and hard, it's hard for people to be with you. And if you're a parent and those other people are your kids, then they're having a hard time. And you're having a hard time because people who are addicted to alcohol or other substances are experiencing lots of shame, self-contempt, self-loathing, uh, guilt, especially if you're a parent. How could I be doing this to my kids? For that, that doesn't make you a better parent. It makes you a worse parent. Mm -hmm. Guilt and shame make you suffer and the suffering leads to more drinking, more explosive behavior, and more depression. So, yes, you get the transgenerational effect. Some people mistake that for a genetic disposition that's passed on. It's not that, usually. It's the behavioral style of a family in which addiction is prominent. Yeah, and it sounds like there's certain traits and qualities that are the opposite, like, I guess, instead of self-loathing, self-love, or self-compassion, or, I mean, even 12-step, it seems like the one of their greatest um, gifts to someone is they give a sense of connection and community and love that maybe yes, the person didn't yeah. get. Um, yeah. is, it, is it fair to say that, like, these kinds of experiences or traits, if they're given to a child or given to a person, it would uh, make them immune to addiction or to unconscious behavior well it would certainly help mm -hmm. yeah i don't know about immune but or i mean who, yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know what you're saying and yeah kids who grow up with love and, and acceptance and a sense of uh belonging and a sense of security sure they're going to have more resilience when it comes to addictive um processes so when their friends start using or whatever or passed around or whatever uh they will be less likely to take it to that 
to that extreme for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, this goes far beyond addictive behavior. I mean, most relationship yeah. counseling advice is the same idea. Like if they're, if your parents treated yeah. you differently, you'd be nicer to your boyfriend, girlfriend, et cetera. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the terms that I, or a couple of terms you share in the book that I think applies to everyone were delay discounting and now appeal. Um, can mm-hmm. you share about that? Cause it seems very tied. I mean, everyone I think is subject to them. Yeah. Um, so those are common psychological processes that humans and even other animals uh, have. Um, uh, delay discounting or now appeal is the tendency to go after immediate rewards and to value them over future rewards. It's, it's pretty much that simple. So it's like the low hanging fruit tendency. Um, and so, you know, in, the experiments that they run, for example, they will, they will have a series of trials on a computer and uh, on a computer interface that um, the subject will press one button or another button. Would you prefer $5 or five euros now or, or you know, $10 in a week? And people will continually press the $5 now, not consistently, but the, um, the proportion of immediate uh, non-patient choices is always higher than what you would rationally expect. It makes more sense to wait for the bigger reward. Why do you go for the immediate reward? Because that's the way we are. That's the way the brain works. This has to do with the dopamine system, the way that we tune to rewards that are salient, immediate, and available, whether it's food, sex, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, clearly that's adaptive for organisms. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you want to pick the low-hanging fruit. That's, that's, that's good for you. But with addiction, the problem is that, that, that now appeal, what I call now appeal, what in psychology it's, it's, uh, or behavioral economics, it's called delay discounting because you're discounting rewards that are delayed. You're discounting the value of them. Um, the problem in addiction is that it's like, you know, when I give talks on this, I, I usually joke about You've never heard anyone say, let's do some coke next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's never going to hear that, right? And, and that's, it's important because it's the immediacy of, it's that, that gives it this inflated sense of, of value. It's just it's inflated. Yeah, and uh, I, I believe you tied this, these terms together. Um, ego fatigue, like uh, sometimes yeah. people are better at... Uh, recognizing delay discounting versus other times i mean one being if they're just like mentally taxed it's harder to have willpower is that right yeah 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 so that's another big concept in in cognitive psychology uh and it's there's a lot of dispute about it now because it's really hard to figure out exactly what the mechanism is but in a nutshell it's that you can't uh, it's hard to continue to say no to yourself it's hard to Mm -hmm. continue to resist a temptation so one experiment you know they'll give have subjects sit in front of a plate of cookies and mm-hmm. be told not to eat any for some period of time. And then after whatever, 15 minutes or something, they'll give them cognitive tasks, puzzles, and so forth, and find people who've had to sit through that and control them to inhibit their, their impulse will do more poorly. So yeah. it's, like, it's like you're losing some kind of cognitive uh, efficacy, some kind of cognitive um, uh, decisiveness by virtue of who knows exactly how it works. It's just, it's like you're using up some, some capability and it's, yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to figure out exactly where, what's going on at the brain level. Yeah. Cause I mean, we, we hear people speak about this, even like in the productivity hacking world, like um, Cal Newport shares about like why people should get off social media is that you're spending all your attention and then you don't have enough attention for yeah. high attention activities similar. So it could be yeah. that. It could be that. It could be just kind of like some kind of mental fatigue. And the, the term ego fatigue applies that. But it's not really. It's not necessarily fatigue. I mean, sitting in front of a plate of cookies is not really fatiguing. It's not, it doesn't drain attention. So there's something deeper that's going on. And there's been a lot of speculation about it. But in addiction, it's pretty obvious what the problem is. That yeah. You know, you're yeah. to know yourself all day long. And at a certain point, you, you break. You can't do it. And it's... Do you know the marshmallow test, the famous marshmallow test? With, with children, and they get yeah. two if they can wait or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they have to sit there. Say, if you have one marshmallow now, or if you wait till I come back in the room, I'll give you two. And so that borrows from delay discounting, or now appeal, because that marshmallow is very appealing, the one that's sitting in front of you. But it's also the case that you'll see these three- and four-year-olds sitting in front of that marshmallow, and, like, you know, <laughs> twisting and scrunching and... 
you know, turning away from it. Sometimes they even rub the marshmallow in the face. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so sweet. Uh-huh. There's, if you Google um, the marshmallow test, there's a very well um, uh, uh, done, I don't know who did it exactly, but it's it's a lovely just um, video of, of, of one of these kinds of experiments. And, and you see exactly how the kids behave. And it reminds you of how you sometimes behave when you're sitting in front of whatever right uh, a pizza or you're waiting for everybody else to be served at the table and you got served first and you want to eat you know but you have to wait if you're going to be polite so it's like it doesn't go away yeah it's interesting like that is i mean it's like it's a form of pain almost and like I, it's cute with kids obviously but if you like yeah. look at maybe the metaphoric inner child and someone with a willpower problem like the twisting exactly. and turning is kind of what's happening inside yeah yeah and yeah. it's big for, for, for people in addiction. It's really, it's, it's a real problem because they have, I mean, if you have like a serious addiction or eating disorder, you wake up in the morning having to say no to yourself and all day long, you might have to say no to yourself over and over and over again. So that's, that's really hard. Yeah. And, and a lot of like, uh, I mean, a lot of things you'll hear in like a, from people when they're going through therapy is like a lot of fighting yourself for whatever reason. And like, that's just like a, a really hard way to go through life, always fighting yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, this is maybe a philosophical question. I don't know, but um, there's a, there's been a lot of um, associations between substance abuse or drugs and creativity, and I, I don't know where you stand on that. I'm about to ask you, but my first experiences with addiction, dating someone who is very addicted to a lot of things. One of my draws actually to her as a person was that she was so in touch with her feelings and like she would do, do everything now in a way that like an egghead like me, like I couldn't, I couldn't do anything now. I was, I was uh, reserved about everything and she would snort this and drink that and go here. And I, I thought it was such a beautiful way to live. Like I felt like she was opening me up to this whole world of experience and she was so creative and all, all, the, all the stereotypes you, you imagine with like an artist with a, with a substance problem. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, you have the neurological uh, uh, data and research. Is there anything to creativity and a connection with addiction? Well, I wouldn't say that the addiction or the substance is is driving the creativity. I'd I'd rather say that people who tend to be, um, well, creativity is a kind of risk-taking, right? It's, it's, It's a sort of comfort with novelty. I, I want to take chances. I want to go out and explore. I want to feel what things could be like, which is sort of the opposite of how you described yourself as you know, mm-hmm. being more introverted. And so those people are A, more likely to take drugs and therefore more likely to become addicted. And B, they're more likely to be creative in the arts. So I think that's, it's, it's, it's that simple, except, except maybe with respect to when you think about all the musicians down through the decades of the 20th century who've been smoking up or shooting heroin or whatever it is, especially jazz musicians, especially African musicians, black musicians. I mean, that was a real part of musician that their music music culture was, was being high. Mm -hmm. And it's true that when you're high, you can be in a different place. So you're not, depending on what you're using, you're not as perturbed by, uh, having to think about, you know, whatever it is, paying the bills or what time you have to wake up in the morning. And therefore, you may have more attention to pour into the notes that you're playing on your saxophone. So that's another way of thinking about it, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking for myself and my own experience, obviously, but spending time with people like that, uh, sometimes doing drugs, but like, I just wasn't into the stuff she was into. But like, something I think it was important for my development as a reserved person to learn how to f- follow my impulses more and all that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I, mean, I assume maybe something in my brain also changed. Uh, in my case, it was positive. Is, is, the, is there something, uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'm asking, but like a virtuous side to a lack of willpower or a virtuous <laughs> side to like being able to, or to just yeah. being open to this kind of thing. Yeah. I, th- I think I get a sense of what you're saying. And actually I listened to one of your podcasts um, part, I guess I listened quite closely to the part of which you were talking about your own uh, history. And when you got into a fight with somebody, somebody, I don't remember exactly what they were doing, but they were tormenting you in some way and you, mm-hmm. and you, you, you hold off and hit them. Uh-huh. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you wondered a lot about that, uh, whether that was the right thing to do, but you kind of felt that that 
what had to be done in some some fashion. Am I? Mm -hmm. Am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a virtue of aggression. Was the title? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, in that sense, in that sense, is it virtuous to um, follow the impulses that are generally inhibited, that are generally, you know, not okay? Another hard question. I think there's got to be some value to it because otherwise the inhibitions, the, the constraints that we live with, which are obviously very important for, for um, pro-social behavior, become like the wallpaper. They become, or like the, 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 the bars of the cell. They, you, you don't ever imagine that you could actually move beyond them. They become fully constraining. And they shouldn't be. They should be inhibitions that you should have some sense of what their purpose is, what their value is. So I think breaking through that wall from time to time in all kinds of directions, yes. I think we could say that there's real value to that. Hmm. Cool, cool. So my, my last question, because I know we're coming up on the hour, uh, it's kind of just a writing choice uh, question. So one, actually, one of the things that was very interesting about your book, Biology of the Desire, but also made it hard to read, actually, was that were the personal stories. And it's like... Right. Uh, you know, kind of almost like I compared it uh, to Black Mirror, like they're really great episodes, but you can't binge them because you make you feel kind of bad. Um, I was yeah, just curious what, what had what had you choose uh, to write? I think most of the book was like kind of in a narrative style as opposed yeah, to what it was. most. It yeah. Was. yeah. Was that was I'm curious what drove you to make that writing choice? Yeah, for a long time, I, I have thought that combining the subjective experience of addiction with a scientific understanding and a psychological understanding and a social understanding, all these more abstract ways of looking at it, was, was the way to go, was the absolute way to go. You need to be able to feel what it's like if you really want to understand it. And that doesn't mean you have to do it or go there, but you should be able to get close to people who have been there or are going through it. Well, usually that means following a narrative. And there are many uh, addiction memoirs out there. There's lots of them. And some of them are fabulous. There's such you know, uh, evocative, uh, uh, gripping stories of struggle. I mean, I could, I could name lots, but in my book, The Biology of Desire, I do follow five people through their addictions and coming out the other side. One, one had an eating disorder. The other four were addicted to heroin, one methamphetamine, another alcohol, and the other one was addicted to um, opiate uh, pills. And the narrative writing was a real attempt to try to feel what it was like to be in there in that conundrum, in that, in that mm -hmm. terrible you know, uh, conflict between, I know I shouldn't be doing this, I know it's bad for me, I know it's really leading to a bad place, but I'm really having a hard time not doing it. And it's I, I love narrative writing. I, after mm -hmm. you know decades of scientific writing, I am now mm -hmm. finishing my first novel. And oh, cool! And love, yeah, <laughs> and I just love it. It's so it's so much fun, and you know, I because that's that's a way to get to you know, how people feel, uh, what yeah. it's like to be, to be uh, someone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've uh, I've been in the self help industry for a long time, and like, uh, yeah, I've, I've also I don't read self help books for the most part because like there is so okay. much that you could pack into. Uh, it's felt experience and narrative and scenes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, can you mind if I ask what your novel's about? Uh, no, I don't mind. Um, it's about a guy who goes through. A, it's kind of speculative fiction, like near sci-fi. Mm -hmm. He has a brain surgery for a condition, and it's a kind of um, brain, an implant that causes his personality to continue to shift out of control. So it's it's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde theme. Cool. I imagine you're using a lot of uh, your neurological knowledge within the book. Yeah, but hopefully not not you know not too much. You don't want to turn off your uh, reader. You don't right. want to be <laughs> technical. Yeah. But, but yeah, there's, it is based on, on real brain stuff. And as his different brain states take over, he finds himself in a state of intense impulsivity or intense terror or intense rage, and it's a bit of a challenge for him. So he's got to figure out how to hell how the hell to. Uh, to work through that that's that's, that's the basis cool sounds great uh well mark thank you so much for making the time this is really fascinating um yeah it's it good talking speaking with you, with you. yeah um where can people find out more about your work um come to my website um it's if you just google my name mark lewis and addiction you will it'll, you'll take you right to my website um which is called understanding addiction but there apparently there are a few things with that title so um mm -hmm. Just Google Mark Lewis and addiction. And uh, I've also got a YouTube channel 
which and I've got quite a number of lectures and interviews and talks and stuff uh, that are on YouTube. So that YouTube channel is kind of like, yeah, branches into those different videos. And so there's awesome exposure. Awesome. Well, awesome. Yeah. Thanks again. All right. Uh, you yeah. Take care. Good talking to you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to Rwando.com. Catch me on social media at Rwando. And please do not forget to subscribe.